This episode of Long Read is sponsored by Haymarket Books. This September, Haymarket are organising Socialism 2022, the biggest socialist conference in North America. It runs from September 2nd to September 5th in Chicago. Speakers like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin Kelly and David Harvey will be there to discuss radical politics, history and strategy with hundreds of activists. You can find out more at socialismconference.org. Anyone who registers before July 8th will receive a discount rate. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The German writer Walter Benjamin has become one of the most influential cultural theorists of the last century. Benjamin took his own life in September 1940 to avoid falling into the hands of the Nazis. His unorthodox Marxism and ideas about culture and history have inspired several generations of critical thought about the world made by capitalism. Our guest today is Esther Leslie. She's a leading authority on Benjamin's life and work, who teaches at Birkbeck University in London. How would you summarise the phases in which Walter Benjamin's work has been understood and interpreted since his death in 1940? I think it's quite complex because it depends where you're looking. I think there are different national um, relationships to this question. I suppose in the immediate years, there was a, a question of getting some of the legacy out in Germany, and that was really the work of Adorno and Scholem, gathering together representative essays for a volume, and then very quickly moving moving on to the letters. They really wanted to put out an edition of the letters to reflect the, the milieu and the conversations which Benjamin had with such a variety of people. So I suppose that there's that initial kind of philological and restitutive phase. But then I think different things start to happen. So by the 60s in Germany, Benjamin becomes quite favoured as one of the things that will appear in pirate editions, particularly his more left-oriented work, practical work about mass reproduction or the author as producer, the the reconceptualization of the relationship between art and politics. So there's a really politicized Benjamin that comes out in the context of the student movement. And, And that's adopted partly in Britain through John Berger's work and his BBC series and book Ways of Seeing from 1972, which is very much organised around Benjamin's ideas on mass reproduction and you know, there's this whole excitement about photocopiers and posters and you know how all of this can contribute to political campaigns and so on. But I think they're also emerges through this period. Strands, for example, in France, there's this fascination with the arcades project and the work on Paris and Baudelaire, and that comes to be worked out 
and reflected on in relation to new ideas around what the city is and high capitalism, city of imperialism and consumerism, city of dreams. So all of that starts to work through. And then also coming from France, you get these contributions from Derrida, going back to the earlier work, thinking about questions of law and violence and effectively the, the plane of, of the linguistic, the deconstructionist approach, which then emerges in America, particular fascination on allegory and the literary. And then I think it's, it's really in the 80s and 90s that one gets this, this view in the Anglophone world on the one hand of, of Benjamin as, as this melancholic and it's far, far removed from Benjamin, this political activist. It's, it's a, a philosopher of, of failure and death and loss and mourning. And on the other hand, there's the postmodern Benjamin who somehow allows us to to reject Adorno's cultural elitism and think about popular pleasures and the joys of fashion and popular TV and shopping and all of this. So they're really conflicted strains which often align, I suppose, with with dominant strains within the broader political worlds and whether there's there's a place to think through the very concrete questions he asked about the the role of culture in the anti-fascist struggle in the in the struggle for liberation or an expanded sense of communism uh, that falls away at certain times and one also gets this strong interest in Benjamin as, as a Jewish mystic, which was a line very much encouraged and kindled by his interlocutor Gershom Scholem, who wanted to negate the Brechtian influence on Benjamin and unacknowledge it in a way, whereas, you know, other Forces and, for example, the important contribution of Edmund Vesisler, who is archivist of the Brecht and Benjamin archive, that does a, a valuable corrective and shows the extent to which Brecht and Benjamin's thinking was intertwined. So, you know, some some streams will emphasise that, and then there's Adorno, another interlocutor who, in some regard, wanted to claim him perhaps through a sense of guilt in some ways, for the Frankfurt School and to just see him as a, a brilliant critic of capitalism, but not necessarily someone who's providing tools or prompts to, to overthrow it in any practical sense. We're now going to hear some clips from the British documentary series that Esther mentioned, Ways of Seeing. In the opening episode... The art critic John Berger summarised the ideas of Benjamin about works of art and mass reproduction. The process of seeing paintings or seeing anything else is less spontaneous and natural than we tend to believe. A large part of seeing depends upon habit and convention. The invention of the camera has changed not only what we see but how we see it. And in a crucial but quite simple way it has even changed paintings painted long before it was invented. The painting on the wall, like a human eye, 
can only be in one place at one time. The camera reproduces it, making it available in any size, anywhere, for any purpose. Botticelli's Venus and Mars used to be a unique image which it was only possible to see in the room where it was actually hanging. Now its image, or a detail of it, or the image of any other painting which is reproduced, can be seen in a million different places at the same time. The meaning of a painting no longer resides in its unique painted surface, which it is only possible to see in one place at one time. Its meaning, or a large part of it, has become transmittable. It comes to you, this meaning, like the news of an event. It has become information of a sort. The faces of paintings become messages, pieces of information to be used, even used to persuade us to help purchase more of the originals which these very reproductions have in many ways replaced. I've now emphasized the ways in which reproduction makes the meaning of works of art ambiguous. This is not as negative as it necessarily sounds if we realize what is happening. What it means, in theory, is that reproduction of works of art can be used by anybody for their own purposes. Images can be used like words, we can talk with them. Reproduction should make it easier to connect our experience of art directly with other experiences. Looking at Benjamin as a thinker in his own right before those different interpretations began to emerge, when he began to engage with Marxism as an intellectual tradition or a school of thought, what were the key reference points for him? I think one needs to remember that that Benjamin um, has a very political adolescence. You know, he's high up in the the hierarchy, if it exists, of of the, the student movement, of the free student movement, who are influenced by Nietzsche and Ibsen and all sorts of progressive ideas of the time and and uh, are, are relating to currents within expressionism and new thoughts about pedagogy and the reinvention of experience and so on. So he's coming from a, a, a strong milieu of debate where poetry is really important as a, as a way of articulating expression, uh, experience and, and selfhood. But when the First World War breaks out, that hits a limit and you know, there's the suicide of some members of the youth student movement circle that hugely affects Benjamin and all of that circle. And they never forget it. And it also exposes for him some of the limits of that mode of thinking which he interprets the the deaths as as a kind of sacrifice to to militarism which has not been able to be prevented by the student movement and all their wishes and all their thinking it also exposes to him the sort of social structure within within the city of berlin where he lives. So I think from that point on, he's really looking for a sort of holistic social understanding of the whole, of what produces war, what produces social 
division. And together with Sholem in their student days, they, you know, they're looking at anarchist trends. They're looking at what's happening in the Soviet Union or in Russia during the revolution and after. But I think it's only really once he goes to an island in the south of Europe at 1924, like many of his comrades or friends, he's, he's reading Gail Glukach's History and Class Consciousness. And this has a, a huge effect on them all. I think because it has both this political, sociological, rigorous analysis of structures, power in the world, but at the same time it's trying to account for consciousness and for the ideological at some level, uh, this central notion of re- reification, of humans becoming thingly and things becoming fetishistically lively, this exchange of properties, I think is very generative for for thought in this period and for people who've been through this period, the inflation, the kind of wildness with which currency kind of takes off in the world, seems to take on a life of its own and, and, and things kind of grow in importance through their tangibility and humans become this sort of flotsam and jetsam that um, can just disappear in in the face of number. So there's a lot in Lukács about this sort of rationalization and, and, and becoming number and so on. So I think all of those things echo with Benjamin, but at the same time, he makes a personal encounter and he often, you know, his thought develops in relationship to people he meets, particularly women who influence him. And he meets a, a Bolshevik from Latvia called Azia Latsis while in Capri. And she's a theatre producer who works with children in a revolutionary, dramaturgical way. And he falls in love with her. But he, he also develops his ideas through that encounter. So, I mean, in short, I think he's trying to understand a world in turbulence after war, inflation, revolution in the East, failed German revolution and so on. Like many, he's just trying to understand what is happening and and the work from Lukács and others helps to orient him. In 1925, the Soviet director Sergei Eisenstein released his film Battleship Potemkin. The music we're listening to comes from a famous scene depicting a massacre on the Odessa steppes during the revolution of 1905. Critics hailed Battleship Potemkin as the greatest film to date. The following year, Benjamin went to Moscow for a closer look at the country and system that had produced it. What was the significance of Benjamin's trip to the Soviet Union for his political and intellectual development? And how did he relate to the official communist movement in Germany and elsewhere? He goes to the Soviet Union at the end of 1926, beginning of 1927 for uh, a few months. And I suppose, you know, at, at some level he's going to visit this woman he's in love with, Asya Latsis, is there in Moscow. Um, you know, they, they'd written 
um, together, they thought together. He goes to pursue her more concretely. Of course, she uh, is there with an existing lover, so it's quite a, a difficult relationship. But he also goes in order to to see communism close up, to see the post-revolutionary society, to experience it. I think experience is a strong category in Benjamin's work and some of the things that are most compelling about the ways he writes is is his articulation of experience. So he wants to render an experience of Moscow. He keeps a diary while there, which is illuminating for understanding his attitudes. And he, he writes also a shorter essay about his time there. Um, he's fascinated by how different it is from Berlin. For him, Berlin is like this rationalized kind of space and what he experiences in Moscow is uh, a place of great busyness and energy and social reconstruction which is quite exhausting I mean I think he feels ambivalent about that at some level that there can be endless debates in this extension of democracy and through the workers clubs you know where do we place bus stops you know how should we do this how should we do that everything is being reinvented and this suffuses him as well with a sense of his own reinvention and you know, this is poetic license at some level, but it's winter, the streets are icy. And he talks about how he has to learn to walk again. It's like he's become a child again. The new Soviet man, you know, begins as the new Soviet boy, and he's slipping and sliding everywhere and trying to get his bearings and trying to get a foothold in what is also a chaotic and fluxy situation. So uh, he goes there to see that at first hand, to speak to other intellectuals, to find out what Tretyakov is up to, to find out what these figures are doing. He's obviously engaged with theatre, with Azulatsis and her her other lover, uh, Bernard Reich, who's involved in the theatre there. So he's looking at the cultural plane. He spends a certain amount of time just uh, walking, thinking, observing. So there are extraordinary descriptions of marketplaces and, you know, looking at the place of Lenin in in all of this, you know, this image of Lenin, who, of course, has been dead for a few years now. He sees the burgeoning cult around Lenin emerge and comments sort of quite critically on that, Lenin as a kind of icon within the longer icon tradition of Russia. He looks at the way in which youth are being charged up. He says like batteries, they're sort of being fired up in a sense through a kind of enthusiasm, which from his point of view as someone who's also been fascinated by French history and Kant and so on can see the kind of power of that uh, enthusiasm as as a something mobilized within revolution. So he's looking skeptically, maybe, but also with his, his own sense of enthusiasm. But of course, it's it's also clouded by these difficult personal relations. And when he leaves, it's with 
tears in his eyes after a, a kind of fruitless love journey. In terms of his relationship to the official Communist Party, I, I, I think it's something he was testing out. He's interviewed while he's there about who his favourite author is and whether he's being playful or whether he's being honest. I think he is being honest. He says it's Paul Schierbart, um science fiction author, somebody who who wrote Les Abendio, science fiction speculation in the earlier part of the century about another planet, you know, a slim novella. Uh, Schierbart also writes a manifesto on glass architecture, which relates to Bruno Taut and the glass chain movement, partly utopian architecture, partly practical. Bruno Taut was building these extraordinary workers' housing estates and so on. But uh, Schierbart writes a manifesto about the the, the use of glass and transparency, which is very poetic, is sort of practical and mystical at the same time. So Benjamin gives an interview to a newspaper about this favourite author, which I think is met with a certain amount of bemusement. You know, why isn't he talking about the greats? And he's commissioned to write a piece for the Soviet Encyclopedia about Goethe, and he does this, and he takes it very seriously, and he writes a materialist reading of the contradictions of Goethe in relation to aristocracy and bourgeoisie and revolution, and the encyclopedia rejects it effectively as too Marxist, in a sense, too materialist. There's too much talk of class struggle, they say here. So it's like he doesn't the right mark. And I suppose from my point of view, I would say, well, that's because really by this point there is Stalinizing uh, processes in place and and uh, Benjamin's more um, critical, anti-bourgeois um, cultural politics and his, his relationship to sort of avant-garde thought and so on are are not finding a welcome home in a communist party that's making its sclerotic turn at this point. Benjamin never secured a post as he had been seeking in the German university system and he had to make his living thereafter as a freelance writer. But was it ever conceivable that he could have pursued the lines of inquiry that he had in mind within the academic university culture of his own time? I think it's an interesting question in in the sense that it is completely counterfactual, isn't it? And that even if he had got a post, then by 1933, he'd have to have um, left and found some other arrangement like so many of them did. I mean, it all starts with the going wrong of his habilitation thesis, the thesis he uh, Germans have to write the second thesis in order to get a teaching post, which was rejected, or he was required to withdraw it because its method was too experimental. And that was his work on Baroque morning plays uh, with its extremely difficult introduction 
and then the body of the text, almost like a montage of of quotes and interpretation, and it did not fit the the structures of the time. I think, of course, he could have had a nice little sinecure where he followed up his his many interests, but I doubt many uh, academics were in that position at the time. I was thinking about a sort of partially um, uh, parallel figure, Abby Warburg's art historian, you know, who was offered a post but really couldn't couldn't do it because it it's, was too confining. And Benjamin had had a very critical time at university where he despised mo- most of his lecturers and all his learning really took place within the student movement and self-taught. So I think he would have struggled. His own work, such as the Baroque morning play, was taught by Adorno in Frankfurt in the university. He became part of the syllabus in the 20s. So that might have indicated some sort of place. But I think his affinities really lay, hard as it was and precarious as it was, his affinities lay with the the more disjointed and disruptive rhythms of reviewing and radio shows and uh, essay forms and this the the work he does in the uh, mid twenties on one way street, some of which comes through newspaper columns and journalism, but it's kind of almost. Uh, I'm sort of thinking in contemporary terms around sort of auto-fiction ideas, but, you know, it, it's that sort of sense coming back to this idea of experience. He's writing up his experience in these dense vignettes that are then universalised, in a sense, to be the experience of urban dwellers in Berlin in the 1920s. But it's it's not academic work, and nor is you know his his final piece of writing which is in a thesis form on the concept of history these are pieces of of dense reflection that have generated an awful lot of uh, academic reflection but they're not um they're not uh generated by the kind of structures and demands or they have little place within the structures and demands of academic thinking. When he was writing things like the author as producer or the artwork in the age of its technical reproducibility, again, these are not, you know, academic contributions. They're they're written on this this hinge between diagnosis and analysis of what is needed and and sort of practical uh, forwarding of new Strategies, and I think one could even say that of something such as the 1931 essay, um, the short history of photography. You know, it is a kind of history, a partial um, history that's all directed towards the practical recommendation, really, of particular photographic practices in the present. Uh, John Hartfield uh, and August Sander and Germaine cruel and so on the the people that you know he's talking to he's thinking about so there's a kind of 
yeah, a, a strategy there that's not necessarily part of uh, an academic environment. After the Nazis took power in 1933, it was no longer safe for Benjamin to return to Germany. Now living in France, he continued his work on the Arcades Project, a vast study of 19th century Paris. During Benjamin's time in France, the Popular Front government was elected and French workers responded with a general strike. British observers found their methods of struggle extraordinary. French workmen have started a new form of strike. In car and other factories, the employees lock themselves in and receive food and drink from relations outside. The idea spread to a nightclub where the gigolos went on strike. They had food and drink on the premises. Enough drink for three months and a sandwich. What was so novel about the approach to culture that Benjamin developed in his work, set against the background of what had come before him? I think partly it's the way in which he was prepared to take deep materialist historical analysis into unpredictable realms. So I think there's something truly extraordinary about the work he did for children, uh, the radio shows with their miniature outlinings of, you know, the significance of uh, the coming of iron construction, how that relates to the uh, economic and social conditions of the time or forged stamps, you know, how can we understand that within the world today and what does it tell us about the state and authority? And this sort of bizarre little topics that become the occasion for knitting together economic, social and political and cultural structures within the world. So I think what's unusual for his time is how seriously he takes that into the realm, say, of of radio or the newspaper. I think also it's his, as we say today, interdisciplinary nature. You know, he he began, he thought he might be an art critic, and then he becomes interested in French literature, and then you know, he's got a certain understanding of the German literature and culture and philosophy and so on. And he you know, he refuses to be sort of pinned into one place and and moves moves around between all of them, and I think that's what one sees in the arcades project, which is you know most likely an unfinished book it's a It's a series of notes, very extensive notes and quotes, but it you know it shows us the the panoramic approach so he says, you know how can we understand nineteenth century Paris, and we need to understand it because you know, this is such an important realm for understanding the development trajectory of capitalism and its own generation of its antithesis, which fails through repeated attempts, you know, from 1789 through to 1871 and the commune. You know, we need to understand how these things arise and how these 
how the bourgeoisie takes back control, limits proletarian organization, self-organization at each moment. That's why we need to understand the 19th century and we need to understand its imperial reach and how that is reflected into the microcosms of the Parisian arcades, the Cairo arcade and, and so on. And we need to understand the ways in which it generates a consumerism, which for Benjamin and a figure such as the flaneur, all of which for Benjamin are precursor forms of the 20th century fascism to come. And to understand that, I think what's remarkable is that we, you know, we don't just tell a history or a political history. It, everything's intertwined. So we can understand that through arcades, through fashion, through technology, through prostitution, through lighting. You know, all these things are giving us clues about what has been and what is set in train and what we have to understand in order to understand our present. So I think that that uh, consistent understanding of the the knottiness but unitary nature of of a social formation, but how that in the past is also conveyed or bears upon the present is quite a remarkable thing, and I think it goes far far deeper than many strands in what we've come to know as as cultural studies the music we're listening to comes from the German film Kulavampa released in 1932 Kulavampa had a script by Walter Benjamin's friend Bertolt Brecht and music by the composer Hans Eisler its revolutionary politics earned the film a ban even before the Nazis took power Brecht and Eisler later worked together in Hollywood on a film called Hangmen Also Die, directed by Fritz Lang. But Eisler's Hollywood career was cut short when he became an early target of blacklisting. He later composed the East German national anthem. How would you summarise the mutual influence that Benjamin and Bertolt Brecht had upon each other? They were very close initially, apparently, in their first meeting, which Azialatsis had brokered between them because she was close to Brecht and interested in his drama. They didn't have much to say to each other and Brecht was younger and somehow they didn't hit it off. But then when they meet again, this develops an extraordinary relationship in which, you know, Brecht thinks Benjamin's the greatest critic of his generation, partly because, you know, Benjamin writes about 11 pieces on Brecht's work and that mutual thing is that Benjamin thinks Brecht is just not just the greatest playwright but also theorist of drama, poet, literary figure or beyond literary figure. So, you know, the two of them think each other's work is extraordinary but I think they they also learn from each other, learning about you know, how to articulate through cultural work, not just the political situation, but how to write in a way that 
generates political thinking, critical thinking, you know, how to not just represent the world and say, hey, look at this, how bad is the world now? I've told you, you know it. But but to work through what Benjamin calls, you know, technique, how do you how do you lay something out to get people to think for themselves to understand structures within the world? So th- there's something that Benjamin learns from Brecht about form, and I think Brecht sees Benjamin's sort of reflection of that back to him and finds that useful. There's also there's a solidarity. I mean, they spend nearly a year together over the course of three years because Benjamin is effectively homeless. Brecht is able to to find refuge in Denmark once the Nazis have come to power. And I think it's like 30, 36, 37, 38, something like that. Each summer, Benjamin spends with him. They listen to the radio. They listen to Hitler speeches and talk about what's happening. They talk about what's happening in the Soviet Union as they play chess together famously. You see the pictures of them playing chess. Apparently Brecht was usually the winner. They talk, they they learn, they give solidarity to each other. And uh, Benjamin, I think, has few other options. There are tensions between them. Benjamin writes down conversations with Brecht and you you get things through the letters and elsewhere. Brecht is very sceptical about Benjamin's concept of aura and the artwork sort of looking back at you and, you know, it's mysticism, you know. But, I mean, to me, these are the productive arguments between people who effectively want the same things. But I, I do recommend for Sizzler's book, um, um, Benjamin and Brecht's Story of a Friendship, which is in German and came out in English in 2016, I think it was, which really goes through the minutiae of uh, of their encounters and of their mutual closeness. And Vesizla felt compelled to do that because other figures, the line coming from Shulam and Adorno, would say Brecht was this destructive and crude influence that took Benjamin away from what he should be doing. And all the evidence points directly to the contrary of that. Recently, some of Benjamin's thinking about history, and in particular, the idea or the image of revolution as an emergency break, saving humanity from disaster, has become quite influential in left-wing circles, especially in the face of a mounting ecological crisis. What was the original context in which he developed that thinking, and what was the main target of his critique? He wants to understand how we could be at the position of war and fascism in much of Europe, you know, not just in Germany, but Italy and Spain. The thesis on the concept of history are probably one of the last pieces that he wrote, their notes. It's uncertain whether they were intended for anyone to read but certainly they were written um, out of a sense of urgency at the point when he was trying to find a way 
out of Europe and away from death in the camps or elsewhere. So he writes in some notes about them somewhere, you know, that this is really trying to think the arc of time or an arc of decline from from the German Revolution and all that could potentially have happened around Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and and the and the forces that tried to change Germany in the wake of the defeat of the First World War and to to bring about a revolutionary society on new terms. And that did not happen and and you know, I think Benjamin is kind of conscious that then the the next twenty years are working through the repercussions of that defeat and fascism or Nazism is a mode whereby capitalism seeks to preserve itself and make sure at that point that working class revolution can't rise again to threaten it. And for Benjamin in writing these theses, what is crucial in this is the role that social democracy played as an enabler, both as the crusher of the German revolution and directly or indirectly responsible for the crushing and quelling of the revolution and the murder of Luxembourg and Liebknecht. And then it's continued efforts to say, look, look, let's not, let's not push too hard because, you know, there'll be pushback. And, and if, if we just keep going there, there will be jam tomorrow. It's okay. And, you know, never really understanding the enormity of the situation and the stakes because fundamentally the social democratic philosophy is one of progress through technology we will sort of automatically arrive at a, at a better and more equal society society is always moving in the direction of progress we really don't have to you know try to push it on through revolution because evolution will social evolution will will get us to where we want to be things will get better and better each day benjamin's line is you know this is not what happens the moment has to be seized of course history teaches us that again and again we need to be organized in order to produce genuine improvements and change so he's very much writing it against the illusions of social democracy in progress and you know these these people some of whom might exist in this world today in our time who say my god how can such a thing happen in our world you know this this really doesn't fit with the uh, picture of things something has gone wrong he's also sort of writing against stalinism and you know but with its own sort of automatism around historical events and i mean it's also about fascism i mean there's these very powerful lines in the thesis about 
you know, the victory parades, triumphal marches that sort of stomp over uh, the bodies of those that they've defeated, you know, and those are the people who get to write history and to be in charge of historical memory and they will write out of history all of the tradition of the oppressed, all of their actions. They will write it, the victors will write it in their own light. And not only will they do that through that act of writing, they will attempt to enforce an empathy on the part of those who were quashed to make them believe that the victors' successes are their own. Germany's wild attack becomes more savage every hour. Down swoop their bombers on undefended towns, down upon women and children. In May 1940, Nazi Germany began the invasion of its western neighbours. After the French surrender, Benjamin tried to flee via Spain. But he was arrested by the Spanish police and took an overdose of morphine tablets to avoid being handed over to the Nazis. He was 48 years old. As a final question, since his death, there has sometimes been a tendency, which you referred to earlier, to present Benjamin in binary terms as having been either a Marxist thinker or one rooted in Jewish philosophical and religious traditions. But do you think it's actually necessary to choose between one or the other reading of Benjamin? I ponder this question a lot. I think it's, I suppose in earlier times, I've been more polemically on the side of saying, you know, Benjamin's, you know, he's a materialist, he's a Marxist, or he's a, you know, at some level he's a communist with a small C and the the location of him within Jewish mysticism was something forwarded by Sholem. It was very forwarded in the 90s. People wanted to work against this notion of a materialist. Benjamin found it much more interesting to think about him as a religious thinker. And this was a kind of ideological move. I mean, I, I still sort of think that partially. And I, and I often think about Peter Osborne's analysis of on the concept of history, where you know, Benjamin talks as much about the messianic, if this is a kind of Judaic notion, as he talks about the Antichrist and sort of rosary beads. You know, there's a sort of ecumenical um, religious reference there because really Benjamin's just trying to lift off the capacities of critical Marxist thinking from a kind of dull positivism. So, you know, the, these other references sort of open up spaces of imagination, speculation, and opens it towards a certain kind of transcendence in in all its meanings. I suppose, you know, maybe uh, now, I, I, I guess in some way, I mean, your, your question suggests a potential reconciliation or the fact that we don't need to choose. And I think I would probably favour that in a sense, or to see... You know, uh, I mean, there, there's a point where Benjamin writes about, you know, Marx sort of secularizing religious 
motifs and and to take that not as uh, a way of being able to say well marx is all just um religion clothed in some other garb and therefore we can dismiss it but to say you know religion is the thinking of commonality it's the thinking of beyond what we have it's a certain thinking of of human solidarity and desire for otherness or some other regime it could be like Ernst Bloch and think about sort of utopias and heaven on earth and you know in, in a way I suppose I want I want to to go in that direction and affirm the religious not as organized religion but as a capacity within thought that that has a utopian dimension and is in that sense reconcilable with with certain versions of Marxism, the point being, you know, for all of us, we want to get to a more democratic, equal and humane place. Many thanks to Esther Leslie for that introduction to the ideas and impact of Walter Benjamin. She's also published several books about Benjamin, which you can find through the websites of Pluto Press and Reaction Books.